My first question is, do you have a morning drink of choice? <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I drink about a quart of coffee with a lot of sugar. <laughs> so, <laughs> and as a cognitive psychologist, too, I know that caffeine is actually pretty good for focus and doesn't have too many downsides until we get into the afternoon. And I love those studies. You know, if I'm biased in any way in terms of my research, it is definitely with the coffee studies. Because I completely ignore, it has a negative title, I'm not interested in that kind of negativity in my life. Now, the positive ones, longevity, increasing productivity, increasing awareness, I love those copy studies. Those are some of my favorites. Oh, absolutely. What's a little confirmation bias before breakfast? I know, right? Right, harmless, right? I'm John Nash, here with Jason Johnson. Hey, John. Hey, everyone. And this is Online Learning in the Second Half, the online learning podcast. Yep. We are doing this podcast to let you in on a conversation we've been having for the last two years about online education. Look, online learning has had its chance to be great, and some of it is. A lot of it still isn't. And so how are we going to get to the next stage? That is a great question. How about we make a podcast and talk about it? I think that's a great idea. What do you want to talk about today? Today's an exciting day, John. It's not just about what, it's with whom. So we have with us today Dr. Michelle Miller. And Michelle is the author of a number of books, as well as a professor of psychological sciences at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, Arizona. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, thank you. Thanks so much. It's great to be here today. What else would you like our listening audience to know about you on the front end as we're talking? Let's see. So I started out really in my career. If I could just share a little bit of my origin story for those yes. who haven't heard it yet. Uh, you know, I started out in my graduate career studying just really kind of core topics in cognitive science and just really theoretical stuff. So working memory, language, attention, and so on, and how all those things come together and got to do a great postdoc at Rice University, exploring what were then some very new technologies for functional brain imaging and so on. And it started out as a faculty member at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, Arizona. And just to set the scene a little bit, Northern Arizona is, is very physically and geographically different and very distinct in many ways. Folks probably picture a lot of cactus and little roadrunners and things like that and, you know, triple digit temperatures. Up here in northern Arizona, it's pine trees, Grand Canyon, mountains, skiing and all that and some very remote areas. And Northern Arizona University historically has been really at the forefront of a lot of kind of what we would have called distance education. It's a little <laughs> bit of a dated term now, but just to meet our mission of working with students and creating more opportunities in this unique remote landscape. We are also adjacent to the Navajo Nation and our institution sits on the traditional sacred lands of the Navajo or Dene Nation. 
And there are tremendous challenges of distance and access. Mm -hmm. And so this has created this incredibly fertile ground for people interested in educational technology, but also all kinds of educational innovation. So that's what happened in my career. After a lot of graduate students, I was prepared for a very <laughs> narrow pathway on the traditional R1 research institution. And, and let's keep doing studies on these different narrow theoretical issues. And I still love that stuff. I think it can do so much. But as a function of these different things in my career, I really pivoted to looking at very practical issues in mm. how we can take what cognitive psychology, cognitive science, brain science tells us, use it to live, work, and especially learn better. So that's what I do today. And I'm also a long-term fan of technology. I've never pursued it really professionally, but always interested in how can we adopt the next thing and what's coming over the horizon. And that's something that in Minds Online, for those who have read that that first book, it opens with me as a kid encountering a computer, which most kids didn't back when I was growing up in the 70s. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. And I think that's the context that I want to offer to readers that today, most of my own research is in applied areas. But I love kind of picking and choosing and translating some of this classic research and exciting new research to see how can we use this to, to help our students. I loved your sentence in one of the opening paragraphs in Remembering and Forgetting, your new book. And you just said, this interest in creating great college pedagogy is a major development. And I highlighted that and I said, gosh, yes, it is. Could you say a little bit about why you think it is a major development? I think we have a fan base here and we agree, but what's from your perspective feels different about this? Right. And that is a, that is an important point too that I like to use as context is that the things that I used to do are really, I think, I think of them as part of a movement. I think that what we have here among people who I think are your podcast based here, we're the people who are really passionate about yeah, by any means necessary, bringing more opportunities for more learning to more people and doing so frequently, not always, but frequently through the lenses of these empirical ways of knowing of cognitive science and so on. But this is a, a big deal to me when I first started getting into this writing about educational technology and the applications. It struck me, I always say, there are folks out there, they will walk on hot coals for these innovations. There are people who are so dedicated. What is this movement about? Partly, one little thread of it is I would call the course redesign movement that I got involved with probably around 2005, 2006. I was I got shuffled off to some conference. I went to, to basically to be nice after my e-learning center said, we gave you this grant for online learning. Go to this conference, National Center for Academic Transformation. I'm like, all right, I'll go. But I, within an hour, I was like, this is speaking to me. So that's when I really started seeing the connections among these individuals out there, leaders who were saying, look, these things in technology are happening. How can we use them to, to reduce the cost, but also to advance learning as well? It was the first time I'd heard people who were talking about eliciting student effort as the means to, to meaningful learning and really talking about engaging students in new ways, even in classes that were very large sometimes, saying, yeah, we don't have to accept that just because Psych 101 has 300 students in it, that students just take two midterms and 
a final and go home. So that was part of what I would see as this movement. And I would also say, too, I started teaching our teaching practicum course for our graduate students around then. I think there's probably a little class like this sort of tucked away in a lot of graduate departments, and it's not ball, but I, I took it and you might imagine ran with it. And when I started teaching that course, there was one textbook that was out there. I think it was, I, I don't know, it was really good for its time. It was called Teaching Tips. So it didn't have really a, a super coherent framework. There was a lot of like, well, I do this in my class and students like it. There was a lot of like, well, your number one teaching strategy and philosophy show up 10 minutes early to class. That's, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> so the advice was scattershot. It was not it, taking into account what I was seeing going on in the study of memory and attention. It wasn't taking advantage of that. And all that started to change. You started, I, I would say that James Lang, a really treasured collaborator and I don't know, a hero of mine, <laughs> was writing in the Chronicle of Higher Education, this powerful column about teaching, and his work started to evolve more in this more empirical, more conceptual direction. And today, we have this incredible international community of people who share these values and share a real passionate interest. We, of course, we have differences of opinion, different favorite methodologies for getting there, but that's what I see out there. Yeah. And just talking about your book, Minds Online. It was and is a significant book for me. I've been in a couple different contexts where I've bought it for everyone that I have influence over to talk about. And it's partly because you do, I think, a great job of putting together a lot of the research, your own and other research on the front end. But then you've got a chapter nine you call putting it all together, which is set up in such a way that you then organize, as you said, you're a practicum teacher, and I think that is very much how I read your work too. And you put it together in such a way where you can talk about the questions and then the tools and te techniques and um, principles and ideas to actually put things into place. And I really appreciate that about your book. It just made for a very, it's a very practical approach to doing online, which I think is part of this movement, as you've talked about over the last couple of decades. Thank you. The one part of the book that I, I'm, I have the page memorized because <laughs> oh, I refer wow. to it. Yeah, it's not very many things. I'm not, this is not my oh. typical orientation. But I think I've referred to it enough times. I see the number 41, at least in my hard copy book, oh. in my head when I think about it. But I just wanted to read it and then have you expound on this and what you've maybe learned a little bit since writing this book. This is from 2014, which is not that long ago. <laughs> but there's still been a couple things, yeah. one or two things that have happened since then. <laughs> but you wrote on page 41, you said that in another online class, Research collaborators and I found that the number of discussion posts students made were the number one predictor of their overall course grade, even though these made up only a tiny fraction of course points. Based on this information, I built in more choices of discussion topics and began contacting students who weren't participating early on. How has your kind of understanding of that either expanded or changed? Or are you like me where this is something that you've come back to over the years? 
Oh, yes. And I remember exactly what you're saying. I mean, and and this is one of these things that I think probably many of us in this community also have experienced maybe the first time or two. And I think that came out of the out of one of my first iterations of an online, fully online course that we realize, oh my gosh, there's basically, I guess you you could call it learning analytics, but or evidence of student activity realizing, oh wow, it's no longer a basically uneducated guess what the heck is going on in the back row or over there or has this person even been to class we know or we can know and so in really delving into some of those numbers as a social scientist too I'm like oh this is this is fantastic data I love it that the data is our love language in, in social sciences so we looked at that and it was surprising and now that I think back at it too it, it also ties into something we might circle back to later we'll see this issue of of student motivation and engagement and decoupling that from points and grades. Boy, is that a big conversation too. So maybe there was mm-hmm. a little glimmer of that of me saying, oh, wait a minute, there's not like a, a one-to-one correspondence between the, the percentage in the syllabus allocated to your final grade and your actual level of engagement. <laughs> Who knew? So those are some things when I think back to that's what I would look at it now and say, yeah. And we realized again in this very very beginning nascent ability to look at what students do at online courses to say what do students even do when they come in we I was realizing that entirely outside of any design of mine in that particular course the discussion post with the discussion board students that were coming in and checking on them mm-hmm. and that's sort of what they would do first to ease in and I, that I could look at that from my perspective and say oh wait a minute if that were me then I yeah I might do that too instead of like I'm gonna go and do the test for today in the first five seconds I'm logged on mm-hmm. I might poke around in discussions and see what folks have put down mm-hmm. so so that is true but I do think that today especially our students who've been through a few of these online courses, there's definitely not a novelty factor in online discussion anymore. That that has been long gone. And I think that there is a little bit of fatigue from them and from us with the post one reply to two. So I definitely think ways of shaking up discussions, ways of backing up and saying, okay, what is the purpose of this? Which no doubt in one of those early courses, I probably, I was like, oh, okay, here's a tool. I'll do that because I'm that's what you do, right? I'll just mm-hmm. focus on coming up with some neat creative choices of these as it talks about. And I did expand those. And I'm, I I think that they were more a, they were more of a social or a humanizing purpose than a, we are going to have a debate. Mm-hmm. We are going to discuss a concept. So that's always been a little different in how I've used them. And I definitely deal with them in some different ways now. Now, when I'm teaching a faculty professional development workshop online, for example, I teach, I, I help facilitate some that are very short. They're like a week. And uh, those very now traditional ways of looking at discussion are not bad just to say, okay, here's what I want you to discuss, present this right, and then read over at least two other people's posts and say something in reply. So it's not like that has no function whatsoever, but there are lots of different ways. And this is where the creativity is starting to blossom and where our students, when they click in, maybe they stop and realize, oh, wait a minute, this is going to be something a little bit different. It's a challenge to assess these discussion posts sometimes. I think instructors 
field challenge to figure out how to assess them. I had that experience myself and it was a field of dreams. We built it and nobody came and, and nothing really interesting happened. So I think that's, was, it's useful to be able to think about that. And then when you have such a, a situation where participation starts to tell you more about overall learning, that's a good feeling. Oh, yes, I completely, yeah. So it's like it can give us this wonderful window, but it's true. If we're sitting there with rubrics and word counts and what I've been putting out there recently is you can accidentally you can create some pretty perverse incentives for students to right. type a lot of words and not have a lot of concepts. So I think, again, there's a place for that depending on, there probably are some courses where, okay, I want a very put together factual thing that responds in some particular way. When I use them, and really this goes back a ways, I have tended to use them in, I guess, contexts that are more there's hardly any right or wrong answers and good faith answers are full credit to me. And I, in case your podcast listeners are falling off their chairs here and saying, how can that be? I am teaching psychology, right? And especially in something like an introduction to psychology course or a cognitive psychology course, which tends to be a little bit unapproachable for some students. I frequently what I'm doing, whether it's a face-to-face -face or an online class is saying, okay, you just learned about this hypothetical theoretical concept. Let's talk about how you've seen this play out in your life or with students. Students love to talk about their favorite media, so including podcasts. Uh, so I was like, hey, have you seen an, is there an example from a podcast you listen to or a show you watch and you're really passionate about or a movie series that you're a big fan of? So that is, yeah, as long as they're getting in there and saying, oh, yeah, this completely happened in this show or, oh, I was talking to my niece the other day and babysitting and this totally happened. Those kinds of moments, I don't, I, yeah, I don't really sweat a whole lot of the assessment. Now, it means you, that that's why I talked a lot about choice there too, because in psychology courses, yeah, you are talking about some, of course, sensitive issues. And so you want to give people a little bit of opportunity to say, yeah, I'm going to steer clear of that. That's a sore subject with me. I'm going to steer mm -hmm. clear of that. But there's ways to do that. Or recently to my graduate uh, seminar, here's how we use them. And they work brilliantly for this. We will sometimes have guest speakers in my teaching practicum course. And one of the pre-assignments for this is something that I want my students to get in the habit of as professionals, which is go Google this person and find some interesting things, you know, coming to speak with us. Oh, wow. Tell us about them. And so in the discussion, you post some facts. Now, the twist is you can't post a fact that somebody else has already posted. So if they're writing about me and say, oh, she wrote a book called Minds Online, you can't have 20 people say that. So you have to read all what's come. And then if you're late to the game, you're going to have to dig up some more obscure stuff about me. So there's lots of other ways besides that traditional one, which I think you're alluding to where you're sitting with the rubric and going, I don't even know. Yeah. I and at the risk of our listeners saying all they have is a humanizing online education hammer, and so everything the guest says <laughs> is a nail, you're, it does sound like that what you've built is discussions, or you're recommending that discussions center not on the arcane or application of the facts, but rather a dialogue on how it applies to the learners' lives and thereby creating community and creating and humanizing the process and then getting to outcomes nonetheless. Is that fair? 
Yeah, yes, I think I think so. And that is that is an important connection. I think in our idealistic world, we are getting to know each other in discussion forums, perhaps in echoes of almost the early internet and what kind of preceded social media with folks would say, I've been just in this discussion or posting and there's individuals who I've never met in person and never will, but I feel really close to them. And when I, at the end of the day, I'll probably rush off to my computer and say, oh, I can't wait to see what happened was thing that they were going through or again see so-and-so with their great sense of humor say what they posted or have this passionate debate that's what we want getting getting there is a challenge but that's the ideal yeah and i've had these conversations with faculty members or administrators frustrated because students often are frustrated with the text-based and especially as you said post once respond twice kind of thing And I think there are new tools out there that we've been talking about that maybe help a little bit in this way. But I often throw it back and say, what are you trying to do? And if you are truly trying to create a conversation, I know I don't like to be graded on my conversations with somebody. You know, if I was having a sitting down, having a coffee with somebody and I felt, you know, there's somebody with a great book out. Well, that was uh, that wasn't a great sentence, you know, kind of thing. I don't think I would feel very free about the conversation. I don't think it would just roll forward feeling like everything is going to be put to the test of this kind of particular litmus test that it has to be in this particular way. Now, at the same time, I think there are, there's a place for essentially doing assignments that are open for everybody to see. And that's what some discussion posts are more so, less about humanizing, more about creating an assignment that other peers can respond to and perhaps give some challenge back to and so on. But you just have to partly just figure out what are you trying to achieve here? And I think our online courses need to remember that just because it's a discussion post format doesn't mean it is crafted in a way to really help discussion happen. Yeah, that's just so well put. What an amazing analogy of... Yeah, so we're sitting in that proverbial coffee shop having some incredible, yeah, have, trying to have a good deep discussion. And I'm the teacher. I have this understanding and you're the student. And here's a person who's got the checklist running down and like, I think you needed a semicolon there. That, that is terrible. But I think what we're converging on here too is, of course, creativity. But I, I come back a lot to Something very similar to the concept of affordances instead of discussion does this and here's the way to do it or you have to have it or not have it. What does discussion elicit as an interaction? What does it support? What does it support easily? What does it not support so easily? And yeah, you're right that the technology itself doesn't dictate post once reply to two. But for anything you want to be an open assignment for other students to see, to unfold in an incremental fashion, to be text-based, and to be asynchronous so that you can think about it. It can be almost like a text conversation, but usually it's a type of interaction where we sit and we compose our thoughts. So yeah, that's how I think about that. Before we run out of time here, I did want to talk a little bit about your other book, your more most recent book that we've been that John referenced earlier. And just to focus in on that a little bit more, a couple of quotes out of that I thought were interesting just on the front end. This gives a bit of a summary of the book, which you stated as the questions at the core of this book, remembering and forgetting. Does technology enhance memory 
and by extension, all of our other cognitive capabilities that depend on memory? Or does technology erode memory, making us dependent and getting in the way of creating new memories? And then you do an excellent job walking through this in various ways. I think you take such a, I feel like such a moderate, cool-headed approach to technology, which I appreciate. You're neither a a pie-in-the-sky kind of person, like it's the best, it's going to save us from everything, nor are you the doomsdayer walking around with your sandwich board telling people that this is going to be the end of us all. Somewhere in the middle of those two, I think we want to be in terms of our conversations, and it feels like you are in terms of your books. But I am curious about this because, oh, and there's this other quote that you're actually quoting Steve Pinker, which said, new forms of media have always caused moral panics. The printing press, newspapers, paperbacks, and television were all once denounced as threats to their consumers' brain power and moral fiber. Brings us to having this conversation, at least at my university, saying, what in the world are we going to do with AI? Is this the end of us all? Can we leverage this? Various conversations in between. I'm just curious what you think. In your book, as far as I could tell, you you had one mention of AI, which is on the very first page. What would you, if you were to write another chapter out of this book, it's an excellent book, but... Given where we are today in 2023, thinking about AI, would you still take a moderate kind of approach to it? Would you see AI as an amplifier to our abilities in education, or is it weighing into the threats a little bit more? Right. Okay. And that's... Thank you Just so a little much question for, that, for you. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for the characterization. I, I do love it. I'm not saying which board. I, I do walk down the middle of the line. And as far as anywhere where I feel like, oh, I would go back and revise it or really where I've really significantly kind of changed some of my views over the years, if not a change, a strengthening of the position that that social media is really different. So I would change social media was the previous, oh my gosh, this is blowing up. And there too, based on the on the research, it it's it's a whole different kettle of fish in a way and operates on some of its own principles and has some of its own impacts and not all super positive ones. But getting back to this AI thing, yeah, you could tell that I do take a a somewhat of a long view of these things. And we do, we look back at, I'm of the Sesame Street generation. I mean, Sesame Street was definitely, was going to scramble our brains and do all these bad things to us. And so I kind of, I look at anything I hear now go, yeah, that was, that was supposed to be true of television, which Mm -hmm. was also quite habit forming and had a lot of negatives and downsides that were never anticipated. It is funny that we are at this point too with ChatGPT. I almost harking back again to my 70s childhood. I think about how when computers themselves started to become part of the everyday landscape for people and there were we look at we look back at it now and it's so laughable but we, there were TV shows and books for kids and so on just saying what are these things can they do they are they thinking do they have personalities how are they different than robots and I think when you're generating all of those narratives in your popular culture you're definitely wrestling with what does it all mean and it's also tempting to me to be a little blase about it too as a cognitive scientist because granted not at all in the form you see today, but 
when I was in grad school, we were looking at neural networks to do things. And we said, yeah, this will be really practical eventually for (laughs) doing more complex, more human-like solving of problems and things like that. But we were looking at how neural networks work to just to address some of these things. So I see it, 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 but we, we did clearly hit a tipping point. I almost would liken it to things like email or social media. Those kind of perked along at this really low level for a long time until they hit a certain point of power and usability to where we all said, oh my gosh, we have to change. We have to change everything. So looking at it right now, and I do hope to be kind of revisiting a lot of these core questions in for Minds Online. Uh, I, I want to have that sort of perspective and consciousness that it's new, but it's also not in, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's not completely run away with it'll be able to do everything human beings do i think 30 minutes worth of interaction with it (laughs) in reality disabuses most of us of that notion but i I think too it gives us even more reason to start to build more flexibility into our courses and i've been writing a lot about that if we do see it through that lens it's a cheating tool it's something that students can just run to when they're trying to grapple with something and develop their own skills we might ask, we might say, you know what really increases the likelihood that will happen is rigid deadlines and a lack of a student-centered purpose in a course, right? Yes. Where it's about, you need to do this for me yes. instead of why are, what do you want to get out of this course? And whatever you're here to get out of this course so that you can go on and succeed in the future might not be compatible with you relying on a chat GPT or something, something like that. As in a lot of things, I'm like, okay, take a breath, everybody. <laughs> let's take a breath. But let's also really acknowledge that, yes, we finally are to the point where relatively natural human-like communication in visual and text forms is becoming more accessible. I wonder if I could ask you a little bit about something that my colleagues in the P12 space have been worried about for a while who are interested in school technology leadership, thinking about ways in which we can think you know, in measured sober ways about the ways in which technology can be integrated into the curriculum and even in post-secondary. But certainly this matter of whether phones should be in classrooms, these handheld computers that are actually quite powerful but could be used in an interesting way. And you talk a little bit in the first couple of chapters and actually in what chapter one, what technology does to us and for us, and how this, the notion of the brain getting rewired gets so much traction, and particularly amongst naysayers of use of phones in classrooms and the media that's put in front of children. Could you talk a little bit about the brain rewiring notion and why it gets so much traction, and maybe what are some better ways to look at technology and the mind, especially as my P12 sisters and brothers start to talk to parents and other pundits about the space. Right. Boy, that is that is a big one. And that's really great that you zeroed in on that. I swear something just pings in my own brain every time I run across that trope of it's doing something to you. <laughs> and there's also kind of, I think, a related spinoff of trips that look at digital interactions as a sort of a pollutant or contaminant, or <laughs> you're consuming something and you don't realize what it's doing to you. And it's an, it is an important question, but yes, of course, cognitive psychologists, brain scientists, we say, yeah, everything is rewiring your brains. Two in particular that I've written about as counterexamples are reading. That 
really, I've seen the brain scans of people who are reading. There are brain areas that are hitched up to other brain areas that never, never would have. I mean, you're just creating these new super highways between areas that formerly were more, more roundabout as far as the connections. And you can't undo it very mm-hmm. easily, at least. Once you've learned to read, you can't not read. It is a big thing. Learning to drive a car. How many, yeah, yeah, how many hours do we spend on that? Yeah. Right. And that, so it is, I do really think we ought to get out the word that cannot, just because something might impact your brain doesn't mean that it's nefarious. You know, I talk about that one study too, that went around a few years back showing, oh, and people back when they could study people who were net naive, who didn't use computers. And we teach them how to use a search engine and scan their brains and their brains are different. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> teach them to jump rope and their brains are going to be different. What is special here? So there is that. Better ways to think about it, I do think, are that you know, with social media and with applications and uses that are engineered to take you off of whatever you were doing and go keep doing them. It's important for adults in this society to learn how to spot that and cope with it. And when I'm talking to college students, I'm a very big advocate of, okay, you know, own your technology, not the other way around. And what is your strategy going to be to make sure, especially if you are a person like me who loves their tech, how are you going to make sure that you're not going to miss out on things in your college education? And it's College students are perfectly capable and often tell me about strategies they have, for example, going on a vacation together, going on the big senior trip and agreeing not to be on their phones or posting selfies. So that conscious determination, I think, is important. Now, when we get into younger kids, now I always, and I always say too, my my specialty, my expertise is with adults. So I, I want to be sure not to overstep my actual expertise. But I don't think that, and I'm not going to list an age or anything like that, but I think we all know that. Yes, when you have a lower level of maturity, anywhere from being a preschooler to a younger teenager, do you have the ability to do that? If I have difficulty putting my phone down because I notice some, I pick it up for one reason and I'm spirited away. If I have trouble with that, then somebody who's 10 is definitely going to have trouble with that. So I do think that external management of, okay, we don't have our phones at mm-hmm. school, right? Or we turn our phones off when, or... We collect the phones at night. That's another big issue is, of course, and, and so on. That, that makes a huge amount of sense. So we need to develop those skills for management. But at the earlier age, we I think not leaving it to chance is important. And really, with my college students, we question a lot, too, of just, wow, so is the assumption that I can't even park my electric car now without my phone or I, you know, it's for so long, we're like, okay, you kids, you put out down all your phones. Also, you need this to log into to school. You're going to need it to park. I need it. You're going to need it to order your food at lunch. All of these incursions, they may be good, bad, or neutral, but we can't just sit and accept them happening to us. We need to be drivers of that. So it sounds like it's really a matter of context with youth, then perhaps those caregivers around them are thoughtful about when this is good to use and when it may not, because the whether or not my brain is being rewired, which it is or is not, that's a different matter from whether it's impeding me from getting to sleep or other practical matters, I think is what I hear you saying. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. 
And with kids especially too, and this was true of television, definitely, and our children is the issue of replacement. And to degree as well with adults, not so much, oh, the phone is doing something to me, but what am I not doing because I'm on the phone? Yeah. And how can I find those intersections? I might share that I, I follow a hobby, a very exciting hobby of knitting, um, <laughs> which actually has a lot of connections to the technology and was really revived by being able to search out certain things online and do certain things we couldn't do before. But I realized that I was relying on it to store my patterns, to store the, to count my stitches and do all these things. And I recently went through and consciously said, no, I'm going to take all of this offline. I'm going to make it so I don't have to have my phone open in order to work on my sweater. These are now going to be two separate things. And so that's a small, that's an example of, again, that very practical, just, you know, don't panic, but it, let's look at what the trade-offs are. And for younger children, those trade-offs get very serious. We're talking about things like physical activity, real-time interaction with peers and all that important stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, your your recent book has a good, healthy dose of uh, cognitive myth debunking, which I appreciate, as well as I think some practical mindedness to it. So, um, really appreciate that. When you were talking earlier about taking a breath around AI, I I thought of this idea that we could do for people that are listening. We could have a mindful moment when it comes to technology. And I feel like that's what your writing's about a little bit, taking a mindful moment. Mm -hmm. And we could say something like, even right now, we could take a moment and say, breathe in your concerns about AI taking over our educational institutions. Now let them all go. <laughs> or you could breathe in concern that technology is rewiring the minds of our youth. Now let that go. Yeah. So that's a it's some you know if you ever want to use any of that in any of your workshops mm -hmm. now that's a, it's a, you're free to move forward and those listening right now you could just re-listen to that part over and over again hold pause as long as you need to breathe these things in and then let them go yeah. Oh, well, thank you. I think you really <laughs> captured the spirit of it. Thanks. <laughs> I feel better already. Okay. Good. Good. So do I. This has been a really wonderful conversation, uh, Michelle. I really appreciate you taking the time. How can people connect with you after this podcast, after listening? What should they be reading? Nice that you it mentioned reading. One of my projects this year, which kicked off in January, is what it was, as we often do, is I started Substack, and I oh, it's cool. part of the drama. I, I, I quit Twitter a year ago. I kind of mm -hmm. Saw which way the wind was blowing and decided this wasn't serving my purposes anymore. So made one of those mindful choices mm -hmm. and uh, at the same time got interested in, in Substack along with a lot of other academics and fascinating folks who write in the space. Now, I don't, I, I don't always use it uh, the identical way they do. But yes, if they find my Substack, that I usually every few weeks I send some things out. And usually the focus is on research that's, they say, roughly about a year old or less. I really do write about what I'm reading. And it's been a really good way to focus me, frankly, to, to say what is important out there. And it, that is, I'm getting back to my roots of what I think the value is that I provide to my fellow academics sometimes, which is, okay, there's so much the research that comes out providing these sort of capsule summaries and talking a little bit more about what's the implications for our practice. So that's what you can find in Substack. And I also... Um, I, I do, I guess, 
lack of a better word, blog posts from time to time. I've, I blog in frequently, especially when I have a book out, but sometimes the spirit moves me. So I'll sometimes be writing more of a really an opinion piece. And so there was one recently on motivation and cognition, which is a perpetual favorite of mine to really wrestle with a little a thing on why I did leave Twitter for those who are super curious. Mm. So that's a big way you can find me. I have a website. I, there's not a whole lot of action there, but it is the one-stop shop where you can see things like speaking topics. I love to speak about the role of memory in learning, for example, and the role of motivation, all that stuff, and catch any blog posts that I might put up in that way. So it's michellemillerphd.com. And LinkedIn, because I'm using Twitter for professional or was using Twitter just for professional communications, I thought, you know what, let me just move all this over. So you can also find me on LinkedIn and follow me for things that I love to repost that I see articles that are out there and yet another way to discover when I do write something like a sub stack or an article that comes out in some mainstream publication. Yeah. And we've really been enjoying LinkedIn as a professional community of late. So that's been a good space for us, which is actually the one of the places that we connected, I guess, more personally is with our current podcast and connecting with that. So, well, that's great. And we'll put your website, your Substack link, your books in our show notes. So those listening, please check out our show notes and check all those as well as check out anytime onlinelearningpodcast.com has all of our episodes and all of our notes there, as well as the link to our LinkedIn community. So we'd love to hear from you. And see what you think about all the things that we've talked about today, right, John? Michelle, I'm I'm very concerned uh, for you and your knitting because of all the yes. bevy of research that's out there about how it's rewiring your brain negatively. <laughs> oh, so I, definitely right. You think I've spent a lot of time on social media? I've spent a lot of time <laughs> making sweaters, and we were. I, I heard about some kids who uh, all they when they looked at other people that they could see. <laughs> Or two knitting needles. <laughs> oh, no. And I watch it tell I'm like, is that a raglan? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how's, the neck, how's the neck band attached? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that was a little off the cuff, but definitely an, an illustration. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. But so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking Thank the time. Thank you. All right. We'll touch. Yeah. Thank so. you so much. Absolutely. Really looking forward to continuing the conversation online as we think about these things we've talked about today with you, Michelle. Thank you so much. Looking forward to connecting and continuing the conversation as well. 